I'm Shaha Razani, and in the news, the Israeli government's contentious judicial overhaul and its political ramifications. Soon after the sixth Netanyahu government was sworn into office, its justice minister, Yariv Levin, assisted by member of Knesset Simcha Rotman, the head of the Knesset's Constitution Law and Justice Committee, moved fast with their plan for far-reaching changes in Israel's judicial system. Their move led to weekly demonstrations by the opposition every Saturday night and to much chaos in an already chaotic Israeli political system. Last week, Israel's President Herzog called for the sides to compromise and offer the path of his own for the resolution of these disagreements. To enlighten us on this important yet labyrinthian topic, I'm happy to welcome again all the way from Israel our good friend, Chaviv Retig Gur. Chaviv is an Israeli journalist and a political correspondent and analyst for the Times of Israel. Chaviv, welcome back to JBS. Shachal, thank you for having me. So first of all, I'd like to touch upon the topic itself of the so-called reforms. What do they actually include? One of the big questions Israelis are asking is what do these reforms actually include? Um, there are a probably a dozen different initiatives, some of them private member bills, some of them government uh, proposals. Um, the main, I would say the five main issues that they're trying to push forward as part of this very dramatic reform um, are a, a, re, a reorganizing or a, really a, a rebuilding bottom up of the Judicial Selection Committee. That's a committee composed of three judges, uh, several members of Knesset, two members of the bar exam. It's total of the, excuse me, bar association. It's a total of nine members and it selects Israel's judges, including the Supreme Court justices. Um, the other one is reasonableness. Reasonableness is a judicial doctrine that you can rule on as a judge to determine that something being done by the executive or a piece of legislation passed by the Knesset is unreasonable or extremely unreasonable, and that way overturn it or pause some executive action. Um, they want to make basic laws uh, of Israel. These are these pseudo-constitutional laws. I say pseudo because the Supreme Court has treated them as constitutional laws. There's a basic law, right to vocation, a right to work. There's a basic law, human dignity and liberties. Or the basic law of the Knesset, which actually contains within it the basic ordering of the Israeli parliament. Um, and we have, a, I think, a, about a, about 15 or so, a little bit more uh, of these basic laws. And they are treated by the Supreme Court as constitutional, but they are not um, uh, in any way, you don't need a majority to change them. And and so they're, they're constitutional in doctrine, but not constitutional in effect. We've seen over the last three or four years uh, the Israeli Knesset changing our basic laws willy-nilly to establish a, a special kind of prime minister called the right. parody prime minister and, and just a, a dozen. This government has existed for, what, two months? It's already managed to change basic laws at least twice that I've noticed. And so basic laws are these um, special laws that have a constitutional status but don't have a constitutional status. Um, and the idea of some of these reform uh, proposals is that they will be laws that the Supreme Court can't overturn no matter how unreasonable they are, by definition, because it's constitutional. Well, if you can pass with a simple majority a law that the Supreme Court can't overturn no matter what it says, in theory, you could pass a law that says that, uh, you know, all women have to wear a burqa, right? Now, that's not a law anyone would propose into, well, I don't know anyone, but it's not a law under proposal in today's Knesset, but it is essentially um, a statement that the Knesset should be able to do this, uh, and what's called a Knesset override of Supreme Court decisions. So, 
the Judicial Selection Committee reform that's being proposed would give the coalition, the ruling coalition in parliament, which is the same actual people as the executive branch in Israel. The majority in parliament as a parliamentary system usually is, is also the 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 government, the, the executive branch. And so this, this un, essentially uniform uh, parliament, legislative and, le and executive branch would be able to you know, pass any law it wants. They would limit the ability of judges to overturn any law or any decision of the Knesset or the government through reasonableness. Um, they would be able to pass it as a basic law and then the Supreme Court would have no judicial review of it of any kind. And then this reform would grant the Supreme Court, the, the Knesset, excuse me, the ability to do what's called an override of the Supreme Court, which is that if at that point, after the Supreme Court has been appointed by the government, and then this law was passed with a little label basic law at the top by a simple majority, at that point, the Supreme Court is still able to overturn this law, then the Knesset can pass it again with a vote of 61, with, with a simple majority. Um, and so that's the the sum total of the reform, and I'm leaving out about half a dozen other laws that are right. connected, and, and, and there are tremendous debates about this. This is not some kind of uniform thing that's moving forward. Just on how to restructure the Judicial Selection Committee, uh, the Justice Minister, Yariv Levine, and Simcha Rotman, who you, who you mentioned, are two very different people proposing two very different ways to have the coalition be the majority right decider and appointer of judges on that committee. And so that's the basic... Uh, reform, and it has a lot of people very worried. Um, Haviv, I have to ask you, just to recap what you just said, what I'm hearing from you is an attempt to weaken the judicial branch and strengthen the coalition, the executive branch, that is to say the, the government uh, in essence, and that's done through the changing of the uh, committee that selects the judges and the powers that are given to the court itself. Um, the question that emanates from all of this is, when the new Israeli government was elected during the last election, was this a major issue that was presented to the public, or has this come as a surprise? The opposition today argues that, you know, they didn't tell us what they were actually going to do. Um, Yariv Levine, the justice minister, and Simcha Rotman have spent the past 20 years uh, campaigning for the very things that they're doing today. Uh, and so I, I do think that what took the Israeli political system as a whole, including many on the right, by surprise, was the sheer speed, the the ferocity, the the the, the really the belligerence uh, with which this has moved forward. We've seen speeches in the Knesset by members of Knesset from Likud and from Shas and other parties of the coalition about how they really feel that they're at war. They're they're one half of Israel represented in the in the in the victors of the last election, and they really feel they're at war with the other half, and they talk about it that way. Um, and so there's been this this um, I think it was it was packaged very badly. I say packaged very badly. Maybe they're being totally sincere, and it's actually it, it, the intent. You know, of, maybe Yariv Levine has talked for 20 years about how to improve our democracy by restructuring our institutions. But a lot of his allies in the party see this as a war uh, of one half of the country on the other. It certainly feel, feels that way to the opposition. Um, and it has raised a lot, a lot of concern. So I, I don't think it's fair to say to the coalition, you know, you you didn't tell us you were going to do this. Simcha Rotman alone has published, I believe, two books just on reforming the judiciary. One of those books on the judicial selection committee. Uh, and so there, this, if the if the left or the center left or the opposition parties, which includes Arab majority parties, some right wing parties, but if they didn't know this was coming, then that's on them. 
I will say though, it's not so much that they didn't tell us this was happening uh, as that even many on the right think that they've gone way too far. It's one thing to reform the judicial selection committee. It's another thing to give the government, literally the ruling government, the majority on it in all cases and every with every judge. It's one thing to say uh, there should be an override of the Supreme Court. The United States has an override of a Supreme Court decision. If the Supreme Court rules something is unconstitutional, I think it's three quarters of state legislators can change the constitution. That's what happened with the income tax, right? That's why Americans pay a federal income tax. It's okay to have an override of a constitutional, of, of a court throwing something out as unconstitutional. But at 61 seats out of 120 members of Knesset, at the simplest, narrowest of majorities any coalition can muster, that seems a little bit, um, a little bit less check and balance, and more simply, you know, steamrolling the judiciary to the point where, in re- in practice, the judiciary doesn't exist. And and we've heard that from the president over the last uh, couple of weeks, who said, "Look, Wait, you have a- before, yeah. Javi. Before we touch on the president, there is something preliminary that I would love to ask you before." Um, this election, the cry out that came from different parts of Israeli society was governance, the desire to see the rule of law on the ground. This reform that's planned by the Minister of Justice and the government has nothing to do with the ordinary Israeli, right? The reform only pertains to the balance of power between the judiciary and the executive. So if that's the case, why is that the first thing that the government chose to move forward with? That's a very good question. Um, I I have uh, my theory, uh, but the, what the government claims uh, is that you know they have many things to get done, uh, and a Supreme a very activist, uh, as they see it, very left wing Supreme Court will make it difficult for them to get these things done. And so the first step is essentially to, as they see it, shrink the Supreme Court down to its natural healthy size, so that a government can act on policies that it was elected to to implement. Uh, And so that's why it's a first step. That's their explanation. My explanation is that um, there's a window of opportunity right now that Yariv Levine and Simcha Rotman and others saw. They, they, They know that Israeli governments are unstable. Uh, Israeli government, this is, I believe, the 37th government of Israel in 75 years. And so even though technically they're elected to four and a little bit years, you know, for each term, uh, in practice, they don't last two years. And so um, I think that they just think that the uh, political timetable is very short. Any one of the political factions currently in Netanyahu's coalition, if they if they get angry at Netanyahu for you know, not doing something in the West Bank, or they believe that he's passing a budget that does something they right. don't like, and they decide to leave the coalition, this coalition falls. It doesn't matter how much Netanyahu won in the election uh, just uh, just in November. Um, and so they think they have a window of opportunity to pass a very dramatic judicial reform that may never return, or at least not in their political careers. And so they are on in a rush. They are terrified of that deadline. And ironically, the more people scream about this, the more right-wing Israelis, former Netanyahu advisors, right. uh, even some current Netanyahu advisors come out against this reform, the more they feel that this is this precious moment that won't return, and they therefore have to push it through all that much faster. And, and here is the other thing that puzzles me to a degree. Members of the opposition, people like, you know, former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, a member of Knesset Gidon Saar, who was just recently the Minister of Justice in this past government, 
um, they all called for reform in the Israeli judicial system, even commentators and pundits on the left, people who are now vehemently opposed to the government. So if there is a support for the reform, what are they doing on the opposition or is it just a political game? I would say more than that. There is a majority, Benny Gantz, uh, who is a the head of the National Unity Party right. in the opposition, openly said, I'm I'm willing to compromise on this. There is room for this reform. There is general broad agreement that the Israeli Supreme Court really is powerful uh, among the courts of the Western world, probably the most powerful court in the democratic world, and unhealthily so, unhealthily powerful. The trouble is that Israel also has a, 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 um, a system of government that is probably the simplest among all the democracies. We have a unicameral parliament. We don't have a second house with a veto on what the first house decides. That parliament elects the government from within itself. By law, the prime minister has to be a member of parliament who enjoys the parliament's confidence. And so by definition, an Israeli government, an executive branch, the executive branch of Israel has a majority in parliament, or it's not the executive branch. And so we don't have that veto. We have um, almost no institutions. You know, MKs in Israel, members of Knesset, they're elected uh, on party lists. And they're right. put on those party lists by their party leaders. They're right. Almost none of them are elected in primaries, very, very few uh, percentage-wise. And um, there's no regional election. No member of Knesset really is elected on their own merits and with their own constituency. They depend on their own party leaders. And so you have 10, 11 party, depending on the election, 11 maybe party leaders in the Knesset who, and, and those are the only people with, with any real power and the people under them work for them or lose their seat for most parties and most MKs. And so we have almost no checks and balances of any kind in our system. And then we have this incredibly powerful court. Incidentally, the lack of institutions on the executive and legislative side is a reason that we have that very powerful court. And maybe that's a terrible system and maybe it's unhealthy and maybe we need to reform it. And I would, I would, I would even say more than that. Huge numbers of people who have been calling for reforms for many, many years and people who helped design this reform. I'll give you an example. He came out publicly on this point. Um, a man named Moshe Koppel, he's the chairman of the Kohelet Policy Forum, which is right. a very influential conservative Israeli think tank right. uh, in Jerusalem. And some of its scholars and some of its planners actually helped develop this judicial reform. Well, the president of that think tank published an article in which he argued for a compromise, for example, to throw out the override proposal, because that's 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 too much. In other words, it's one thing to rein in the judges, limit their ability to maneuver. We have to work on the other institutions to increase the checks there. And then we have a more balanced system. That's a reasonable argument. Right. But even within, not within, even at the top of Kohelet, there's a sense that they've gone too far. And 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 you know when you've gone too far on a on a on a question like this on a question of checks and balances of fundamental restructuring of your judiciary, that's not a small thing. That 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 could be the collapse of everything. And so, that, so Aviv, if everybody is in agreement that the, there is a need for a reform, why does it seem so belligerent and hostile? Why is the atmosphere such that there is you know talks on the street of you know, rebellion and, and carrying weapons against one another and protests and even, you know, hints of violence. Aren't they in agreement? If everybody can, can't everybody come together? What's the reason? I would say, well, you know, it's not everybody. There is a uh, probably 50 to 60% in the middle. And then there's 25 to 30 on either side 
Right. I'm not sure that math works, but but the the relative right. sizes work. Right. I would say that um, because there's a third of the country that says we need no change at all and we have to protect this court at all costs, but they're the minority. Um, I, I I would say that the reason is distrust, and the distrust is profound, and the, and 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 they say it openly. When President Herzog uh, last Sunday on February 12th uh, came out in a big public speech on primetime television, which is very unusual for an Israeli president, right. and he said, "Look, we need to compromise." Hands if one side, we remember those visuals. The trembling. It, it, uh, if one side wins, he said, then everyone loses, and the reason is that, that no one is leaving this country. And so, if one side wins and absolutely it, you know, annihilates the other side, that just means the other side is waiting around for its opportunity, and it will then, you know, launch its attack and try right. to, you know, uh, defeat the other side. There's no defeating and there's no winning here. There's only compromise. You want to build a constitution, you need compromise. And then he went into specifics. He said, on reasonableness, on the Judicial Selection Committee, on the basic right. laws. And he literally gave this in-between path. And he did that so that the Israeli public that was watching him on primetime television could imagine the compromise. And by it, just having the ability to imagine it would put pressure on the politicians. The Within you know two hours later, Justice Minister Levine came out with a statement in which he said explicitly, if I, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, Herzog, the pre President Herzog asked to pause the legislation for a period of negotiation. And he said, I'm happy to negotiate, which he hadn't said before, but I'm not pausing the legislation. Why? Because it's going to be used to delay, to foot drag, and to stop the, the reform. Again, and the I don't trust the other side to come right. to the table in good faith. And then the other side, they're saying, you know, they hear people like get up and say, you're all a bunch of, you know, uh, elitist. He's speaking to the demonstrators. He talked about the glittering of the Rolex watches that he could see watching the footage of the demonstrators. And a lot of people in Israel have a lot of fun at his expense because while he stood at the Knesset podium yelling about the Rolexes of the opposition, he was wearing, I believe, something like a $6,000 watch. Um, so, you know. Turns out politicians can be hypocrites sometimes. I, who knew? Imagine. But um, yeah, but um, but so so really, it's a it's a profound when when the demonstrators heard that from an influential Likud member of Knesset, they don't trust Yariv Levine and Simcha Rotman, and so there is a sense that the other side will not come in good faith to the negotiating table, and and it's preventing anyone from coming to the negotiating table. So the, the opposition says you have to pause all legislation, give us time to negotiate, and then the coalition says you're only trying, to, it's a ruse, you're trying to get us to stop it so that you can, you know, dilly-dally and delay, and we're not going to allow this. This is, as you said before, so eloquently, our one opportunity. So let me ask you the obvious question, Javi, the obvious question. What does it all have to do with Netanyahu's indictments? And based on exactly the same scenario, had we taken that element out without Netanyahu being the premier and Netanyahu being indicted, would this discussion look any different? That's a very good question. And you know, nobody quite knows, or a lot of people have very strong views on, but but you know, if you step away from, from the fight and you try and ask yourself, are there any signals? Is there any, you know, place where I can look to really find hard facts on this question? Is Netanyahu allowing this to move forward? Netanyahu has spent 
15 years, right. talking about himself as a defender of the court. Exactly. Don't worry about the far right. I will defend the court, and I always have. He has said it interview after interview after interview over the years. And now he's essentially silent. He's not talking about this reform. He occasionally gets up on television when uh, a bunch of uh, high-tech companies decided to pull their money out of Israel because they're a little spooked by all the chaos. Uh, He gave a big press conference in which he said, this reform is going to bring tremendous value to Israel and it will help the economy flourish because somehow the judiciary was stopping business from happening in Israel, which I think is untrue. And Netanyahu's own economic people couldn't explain how, but... um, but but he he'll sometimes give these speeches when he thinks he needs to intervene in a serious way. Uh, the American ambassador Tom Nides said something about the reform yesterday. Netanyahu released a statement today in which he said, you know, we will we will still be a great democracy the day after the reform is passed. Don't worry, you know, to our great allies. He didn't mention Nides by name, so he occasionally intervenes, but he hasn't really shepherded this through. He hasn't negotiated this. He hasn't been at the front of this, um, and. The the big question arises, is he letting this go through? Because in roughly six years, educated guess, his trial is going very, very slowly. Uh, It took a year just to hear the witnesses for the prosecution. There's going to be, you know, and then he has to appeal a couple of times. And then only then in, you know, six years, we're going to have a final verdict. In six years, he'll be able to have appointed a third of the court. So does he want to change the way we appoint the highest court in the land? Because he will stand before it in six years where his fate will be decided. Now, I think that if Netanyahu was right now a member of the opposition and another prime minister was in that situation, Netanyahu would be giving that speech saying that that's what this prime minister was doing. When Olmert was prime minister and facing an indictment for corruption back in 2009, Netanyahu gave a speech in the Knesset saying uh, a prime minister who expects to be indicted for corruption, he wasn't even indicted yet. Olmert stepped down before the indictment was filed. Uh, cannot serve because we we cannot know if his policy decisions are clean. But, so, but, but Haviv, isn't it, the General, isn't it the Attorney General who, who decreed that Netanyahu, because of his situation, cannot interfere with the legal reform? Yes, and Netanyahu sort of hasn't and then did and then isn't a little bit and is playing a little bit. Part of the uh, right-wing argument has been that these legal advisors and the judges have all been very activist and gone beyond the letter of the law. And who are they to tell us what to do? And now Netanyahu is playing this game where he's slightly skirting the red line and then pulling back and, and playing this game where he's a little bit taunting and, and, and so to speak, trolling uh, the attorney general, as the kids would say today. Um, long story short, uh, Yariv Levine has been arguing for this for decades. Um, he was a former vice president of the Bar Association of Israel. He's been a lawyer and a thinker on legal matters and a public uh, policy man on, on legal matters. So, and, so and, in a sense, in a sense, Haviv, to answer the question, maybe, or present a solution, even if uh, Netanyahu as prime minister cannot directly interfere in the legal reforms, the fact that he appointed Yariv Levin as minister of justice and quote unquote unleashed him on the court is in and of itself a, a sign of his intention, is it not? Yes, and Simcha Rotman, who is and one Simcha of the Rotman. more important public speakers on this issue. Um, it, also, you know, Yariv Levine and Simcha Rotman would be pursuing this irrespective of Netanyahu. Right. But Yariv Levine stood at the Knesset plenum 
when a member of Knesset of the opposition yelled to him exactly your question. You were, not as a question, of course, right. but you are doing this to serve Netanyahu so he can get out of his trial down the road. And Levine said, you know, I do think that Netanyahu's trial focused the attention of the right on the judicial question and on the fact that our judiciary has run amok and gone to, gotten too powerful and all this. But this is still the right thing to do, and it was the right thing to do. And if that's what focused the right's attention on right. it, that's not a bad thing. Aviv, I know we're, we're almost out of time, so I'm going to just, just going to ask you this last question. In your opinion, the president's compromise or the parties being able to reach some sort of negotiation or compromise, what do you think is going to happen? Do you believe that there is a, a real chance of a compromise under the auspices of President Herzog? The... The conversation changed with Herzog's speech on February 12th. Before that speech, all the sides were showing, were very busy showing their base that they were unwilling to compromise on something so important. And since that speech, by dragging the backdoor negotiations that weren't working into the public eye, uh, all of the political uh, factions have had to start to prove that they're the ones who want compromise. And so Levine has visited with Herzog in the week since uh, Rothman, uh, Gantz, Lapid, they've all gone in and visited with Herzog. There's a new dynamic. Um, I don't know if it'll work. And I, I don't know if it'll work because too many people have to compromise on things they hold too dear. And while the political bases on the edges are too powerful and vocal and would see it as a defeat and as, as a surrender. But I, I do, I do want to say something that maybe ties into that, which Herzog said. We're in an ironic situation where if one side wins completely or the other side wins completely, our, our constitutional system will basically be a kind of walking catastrophe. It's just waiting for the next crisis and our democracy will be very weakened. But if there is a compromise, if there is a compromise that weakens this court to levels that are seen in other democracies and strengthens other institutions or builds other institutions to create new checks and to replace that weakened court, then we come out of this a much stronger democracy. And so there is a middle path in which Israel emerges from this crisis much, much stronger than before. We in Israel have gone through crises. In the 1980s, we went through about eight years of runaway inflation, triple digit runaway inflation year on year on year, and came out of it with the most fiscally responsible government, maybe in the free world. Our budget deficit last year, I believe was zero. Uh, we are a well-run country because we're post-traumatic from our terrible failures in the 80s. We are a country that has failed repeatedly. The 73 war was a terrible failure and rebuilt the army and the intelligence community to be much, much better and stronger, one of the best in the world. And so we're, we are a country that comes out of crisis uh, to build new and better things. If we don't do that here, we will be crying about it for many, many years and suffering from it, but I think we can. Aviv, and to that we can say amen. You know, the hope was, I think, in general, after five rounds of elections, that the state would emerge with a stable government that will finally be able to govern for the best, for the benefit of its citizens. And here we are again in another turbulent chaos. Luckily, the one stable in this turbulent equation is having you on our corner. Uh, thank you so much for your insights, for your wisdom, and for the time you've given us and our viewers to understand a little bit more of this, which I believe can almost never be really understood. Thank you so much for joining us, Javier. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And to all of our viewers, I'd like to thank you all for watching and keep following to hear more about this issue. I'm sure we're going to have 
Aviv uh, more in the future as this uh, uh, continues to unfold. I'd like to thank our director, Sloan Copeland, JBS's managing director, Dara Golub, our technical manager, Michael Paley, transmission manager, John McDevitt, and to our wonderful producer of In The News, Carol Lilienthal. For JBS, I'm Shachar Razani. Until next time, see you soon. Shalom and Lenin Traut. Thank you.